You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. In 2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Max Linsky. I'm in New York with Aaron Lammer. Evan Ratliff is still in Austin, Texas. But we've got a very special episode for you today. Uh, this is our live South by Southwest extravaganza. We threw a little party with ASME, Texas Monthly, Long Form, and The Atavist at Schultz's Beer Hall. Uh, quick disclaimer, this was a lot of fun and resulted in less than optimal sound. Yeah. Uh, sorry about a, that. Schultz is a great place to get drunk, maybe not a great place to record a podcast. Yes, um, but we had uh, a great uh, great lineup of guests, all of whom have, who have at some point uh, written for Texas Monthly. Pam Koloff with Max. Uh, Evan talked to Mimi, Mimi Schwartz. Schwartz. And in part two of this episode, which you will have to hit forward to get to the next episode of, it was me with Lawrence Wright. Who are our sponsors this week? We've got PillPack. You know about PillPack? I've wanted to just, I'm, I'm going to pick a medication and, and, and start getting it just so I can get it through PillPack. Here's what PillPack does. Uh, they replace your pharmacy. They are a pharmacy themselves. They send all of your pills, all your vitamins in easy to open packets, pre-sorted, right to your doorstep. Go to PillPack.com slash long form and you get the first month free. If you are trying to send out something that's more ethereal and ambiguous than pills, maybe you should do so in the textual form by starting an email newsletter with Tiny Letter. It's a simple, powerful way to stay in touch with people who care about what you've got to say. I only want to do things in textual form now. Yeah, it's text. All right, here's me and Pam. Hi. Hi, Max. We've actually done this before. This is the first time that I have interviewed someone for the podcast a second time when it wasn't some specific breaking story. And uh, so I went back and listened to the last one because mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure like we you know, covered new ground. It was pretty great. <laughs> you know, it's funny that you say that because uh, that was not the experience that I... I mean, you were great. <laughs> but listening to it, I, was not, I did not feel that way about my own uh, half of the conversation. And it was early on. I tried not listen to some of the early podcasts because the sound isn't great and like this, it bums me out. And, uh, but I was still kind of figuring out how to do interviews then. Not that I've got it all figured out now, but I was worse off. And that one started... And we, I remember like, we, we were on Skype and I was yes. sitting in my uh, like, living room on headphones... And uh, we finally got it to work and all the sound and stuff. And then I was just like, hey, uh, <laughs> how's your Monday? Which is really a terrible, terrible opening question. And uh, I will try and do better. I will try and do better is my point, st- point of that story. I'm still figuring out how to interview people. I think it's a, an ongoing process. Really? So it's do you a, think sure. you're getting better at it? 
Yes, because I sort of stopped interviewing them. I just talked to them instead of having, I, you know, I don't look at my list of questions very often. Do you, do you do a list of questions and then just not look at it? I do a list of questions and I put them away. And I get them out toward the end of the interview to make sure I haven't missed anything really crucial. But I try to make it conversational and, you know, like a normal, right. a, a normal way of talking to someone. How, how did that evolve? Like when, when you were starting out, did you have like a long list and you'd sit mm-hmm. down and just rattle them off? I'd have this incredibly, you know, just detailed list of questions that went on for pages and pages. And I'd be looking down at the questions and not listening and not focusing um, and being, you know, really preoccupied with why well, I've got to ask that thing that's on the bottom of the page and I can't forget. And, and now I just, I know that I can circle back to someone if I need to and that sadly if someone agrees to talk to me, they're in for it for the long haul and we're going to be talking many, many times and it's not a one-shot sort of deal. Do you make that clear up front? Like, do you, do you let people know, like, here's the thing, if you want to be part of this story, I'm going to be, like, uh, pretty annoying for a while. <laughs> I tell them enough to give them a general sense of things, but not so much that they actually understand how horrible it's going to be. <laughs> because, I mean, it's th- these are months and months and months of talking every day and or emailing every day and, you know, dealing with fact checkers later in the process and photographers and it just goes on and on. So, and I'm, I'm a pest. Like, that's, you know, I, I know the story. But you're I'm a getting, casual pest. You don't I'm have a, notes or anything. I'm a ca- just... Yeah, I look, I casually <laughs> pester people. But I, um, to me, I feel like I'm ready to write when someone is about to kick me out of their house. Like, I, you know, that's when I'm, that's I'm getting sign. close. Yeah. Do you, like, I, I've been thinking about this in terms of these interviews, too. Like, do you start light? Like, what, mm-hmm. how, how do you get into, because you're talking with people about uh, the most emotional experiences of their lives often Mm -hmm. uh, and things that uh, where the wounds are still pretty open Mm -hmm. so how do you get to that point do you is it a do you kind of slow roll that or do you just you know walk in and dive into it no I definitely slow roll it and um, make sure that they're comfortable and may save some difficult things for later down the road but but I I make sure they know at the outset what I'm going to be asking of them and also what I'm looking for from them not with everybody, but with, with certain sources. I think it helps to give them some parameters of the story that you, you are hoping to tell and the role that they play in that uh, and, and why it is that you're there and why it is that you need them to talk to you. How do you do that? And, and do people, I guess I'm, like, you're also talking to people often who haven't talked to people in the press. Mm-hmm. How forward are you in that conversation? How important is it to you that people understand it all? And how important is it to you when you're done that they've understood what's happened before it goes to press? That's a really good question. I think, you know, there, there are definitely things in the course of any story that people tell me, and they're fantastic personal details that I don't always choose to put in the story because I think if people get very comfortable with you, sometimes they forget that you, you're a reporter, you're not their friend. And uh, it may, you may become their friend later, but when you're in the process of writing about them, it's a different relationship. Um, so, yeah, I'll, if, if there's something sensitive like that, I may go over it with them and say, you know, is this something that you're comfortable, you know, right. having all your friends read about? Uh, and, and even when you go over it with someone, I think they still may not grasp it until, you know, I always think about someone standing in the grocery store and seeing you know, Texas Monthly there and opening it up and 
there's their picture and their words and what is that experience going to be like for them. And I try to take that into account. Because when I haven't, it's been, it's been bad. Yeah, are there, do, you have, like, uh, do you have some, uh, some ugly stories in that realm? Yeah, I mean, I think you, know, you forget the power that you have as a writer and that this is, especially now that things are disseminated so widely, um, that, that what you write is something that maybe, it may not be, maybe something that nobody reads, but it may be something that their coworkers read, their, um, their children's friends read, and that's something I, I definitely think about when I'm writing. It's interesting to hear you say that you can sort of uh, forget your power as a writer because for the last several years you've been doing these hugely powerful stories, stories that are uh, in a way designed to have an impact beyond the story itself. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I guess I'm interested in how you, how you decided to start doing those kinds of stories. And they're so life and death. They are literally life and death. Mm-hmm. I'm also interested in how uh, you start doing other kinds of stories ever again. Like, how, yes. how does anything pale in comparison to exonerating someone who's got life without parole or whatever it may be? Sure. Well, I, I really do want to branch out, but these stories keep pulling me back in, as they say. Um, I, I think that these stories are so compelling, they're so inherently dramatic, that in a way they're easier than other pieces. You know, you have um, inherent drama and tension and a story arc and characters built into them in, in, a, in a crime story and particularly a wrongful conviction story. Uh, and so I'm, I'm trying to, this year, while still focusing on criminal justice, take things in a little bit of a, a, a different direction. So I'm not doing the same thing oh. over and over again. Can you tell us anything about what you're doing? Well, I just, I just finished writing a story that was a nice story about a prosecutor, which I've never done before. And... Uh, <laughs> I was hoping that would help me, frankly, a little bit, because now when I call prosecutors, they don't want to talk to me. <laughs> so I thought I could sort of proffer this. They know they're, they're, like, uh, they're ready for like, the Koloff treatment. <laughs> I don't know what it is that they're afraid of, but they're, it's been a problem. So um, hopefully this story will, will help in some way. So this is really just but to appease the DA. Exactly. Yeah, you know, it's <laughs> exactly. like a political cover. But no, the, this, the story was, um, it's in our current issue, and it's about a district attorney who... 17 years after the fact, is looking back on a case in which he sent a 17-year-old to prison for life, and he's no longer certain that that's the correct punishment for this kid who's now a man. And he decides to go and visit with him and, and sort of see who he turned into after all these years in prison. And showing a prosecutor in that sort of nuanced and complex light was really interesting to me. A couple of things I want to talk to you about about that story. So part of it is that you had also written a story 12 years ago mm-hmm. about the case right. uh, that was sort of a, a more traditional sort of crime story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was really struck that you went back 12 years later and sort of did this update. I mean, mm-hmm. it, was, you know, it was like a, it was a follow-up, and you've actually been doing a lot of that. Like the mm-hmm. Morton story, The Innocent Man, the one you won the National Magazine Award for, you've continued to cover pretty heavily. And... I guess, you know, you only do a couple stories a year. Mm-hmm. So why, instead of going into something new, how do you think about those stories? Do, do the stories ever end for you? Well, that's a good question. I mean, one of the things about these criminal justice stories is because of appeals and various things going on, they live on and on and on. And, and there's so many interesting twists and turns that keep happening, and I can't not write about them. Right. So I'm try, I try to move on, but I, I, I can't. But with, with this particular case... 
Uh, I wrote a, a real straight sort of noiry crime story 12 years ago, and uh, and then had kept in touch with the prosecutor and several people in the story, and realized there was another story to write. And it, it actually, I thought it would be an easier story, which I don't know if this is true for y'all, but that's always a curse for me. If I'm like, oh, this is going to be an easy one. Those are the ones that are the worst. But I thought it would just be a follow-up story. Right. And just my writing bang style... Bang it out and go on vacation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. My, my writing style and so many... And, and my interests and so many other things had changed in those 12 years that putting myself back in the same case, uh, it, it was actually really difficult. Um, and trying to figure out how to recap a case I knew that well without telling it again was Was it difficult just from a journalistic perspective, or was there something difficult about you personally going back into that story? I, I think, I mean, if you look at any work that you've done a dozen years ago, you may be, you know, appalled <laughs> or shocked or whatever the word is. But uh, I, I, it was really interesting to go back and look at that piece. And I'm, I'm proud of the first piece, but, you know, I, as I read it, I'm editing it. I'm like, oh, that's such an over-the-top description. <laughs> and, oh, that's just... And I, I think, I don't know if this is everyone's experience, but in mine... As I do this longer, I use spare language, and I, I, I'm not trying as hard. I think when I was starting off doing this, I was trying so hard. Yeah. And I can't remember if we talked about this before, but I wrote my, my undergraduate thesis on Tom Wolfe, and uh, that was, you know, of course, he's amazing, but that's what I used to think was the best you could do nonfiction-wise. We've, we've had a, like a couple people who've come on and gone through that experience where... <laughs> Like, they look back at the early stuff they've written, and it's uh, oftentimes, like, really voicey. You Very know? voicey, yes. And do you think that's just a matter of, like, your taste evolving? Or do you think that sure. the work you're doing now is, like, empirically just better? No, no, no. I don't think it's better. I think it's different. But uh, just to give you an example, in the, in the previous story, you know, everyone I interviewed, I quoted. I wanted to make sure that you knew that I had done my homework. And now I am a more confident writer, and so... The story, though I interviewed many, many people in the story, really the only people who are quoted at any length are the inmate and the district attorney. There are very few quotes uh, other than that. And so I kept the focus really tight. And so even though I interviewed the victim's mother, I interviewed the defendant's um, defense attorney, I, I didn't, you don't know that. And you don't need to know that because I give you that information. Right. So. And those folks had all changed, and so, I mean, it's like the whole right. thing has evolved. I, I want to keep just on that, like, following up thing for a second, because I'm pretty interested in that. When you say, like, I, ke- I kept in touch with them, you've done, I don't know, hundreds of stories. Are you keeping in touch with everyone? What does, like, keeping in touch mean? Are you just, like, like sitting there, like, uh, like half your day is, like, emailing sources? And how does it work? It's, it's a surprising amount of my day. Uh, email is, yes, taking over my life. Um, no, I do keep in touch with people, and they keep in touch with me, and... Not everybody. There are plenty of stories I finish and people never want to have anything to do with me again. I try to not make that happen, but it's inevitable in some cases. But no, I mean, when you spend four or five months getting to know somebody, often getting to know their family, having dinner with them, um, you know, and in the course of that, I will tell them things about my life. It, you know, I, I, it's not a, always an extremely formal relationship. It seems weird to then just be like, thanks, see you later. Right. You know, especially with, with the nature of some of these stories. You know, for example, Anthony Graves, who uh, was released from prison three and a half years ago, uh, he is still very much on a journey of learning how to live a normal life again. And right. so keeping in touch with him is important. I'm sure. I mean, I just, I, 
it sounds amazing to me and also kind of draining. Well, I guess you're saying you're starting to work on, on different kinds of stuff. It feels mm-hmm. like, do you think that there's like a, a cap on how many of those stories that you can do? And I assume that because they have been so successful, both for you journalistically, but also in terms of the effect they had, that you're getting pleas all the time for people sure. who want you to tell their story. There is a lot of that, though many of them are not actually magazine narratives, which is a painful realization to make because some of them are really interesting cases. But um, no, they are very seductive because people are interested in them and they, they are read widely. Um, but I've come to think more and more that the innocence cases in a way are the, the easy ones. Like the case I just wrote about with the DA, the defendant is, is guilty. There's no question of his guilt. And, and to me, that was a more interesting narrative. You know, he's, he did this terrible thing when he was 17 years old. And the questions that that engenders, should he be in prison for the rest of his life or, or not, were to me less cut and dry and therefore more interesting than should this innocent person be sitting in prison. Do you know what I mean? Right. It's, so, it's like a little murkier. Right. And, and the DA, I mean, you're, you're you know, saying that like you wrote it in part to like make DAs feel better about talking to you. But that, that guy had like fallen on some hard times. It wasn't, right. it wasn't like he uh, just one day woke up and was thinking right. about that guy. He had gone through some shit. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And I was interested in that. This, this DA uh, had been this very well-known, very successful DA in North Texas and, and he had a drinking problem that he successfully hid for a long time and, and then it caught up with him and sort of his whole life fell apart. And that humbling experience allowed him to have insight into this particular defendant in a way that he had not had before. And that connection I thought was narratively really interesting. Was he game for that story? Was he game for his whole story to be told? Yes and no. It was a really interesting process because I knew obviously that that district attorney's name is Tim Cole. I knew that Tim's story would be a big part of the piece and that he would be, that readers would connect with him perhaps better than the person who committed this murder. Um, And I knew that at some point I would have to mention his drunk driving arrest and that he had had to resign and, and the shame associated with that. But as often happens when I started writing, and then especially when we started editing, it became evident that we really had to really, really dig into that part of the story. And so I had been completely upfront with him about this is stuff we need to go into. And yet in the end, we went into it much, much more than, than he was ever anticipating. And that was something that we had to, to negotiate through the whole process. How did the, the family respond to the story being brought up again? Did you go back and talk to them? I did, I did. That I felt was a separate story. And so for better or for worse, I didn't delve into that. The, the dad who I had talked to at great length for the first story would not talk to me. And he basically just, as you can imagine, if you lose a daughter at 16, is still going through a very difficult time. Um, her mother is very, very ill. So we had conversations, but they weren't incredibly involved conversations. Um, and and I, I was able to get her perspective in to the story still. So... How do you do that? How do you talk to the family of a 16-year-old who was murdered about a story you're doing about how one of the boys who was arrested for her murder is serving 40 years or whatever it is? Mm-hmm. Maybe his sentence shouldn't be that. Like, how, how, do you, mm-hmm. how do you talk to, generally, the, the families of victims when 
either the innocence are in que- is in question or you know, the sense of justice that they may have gotten is in question. How do you have that conversation? I was in an easier position because I had a relationship with them from back then. But it was the, it was the same issue when I wrote this, the original story, which was I think that they wanted to make sure that people knew what had happened. They wanted people to know who their daughter was. I, and I always, especially in a story, even if it may be read as more sympathetic to a defendant, and I, I, I hope that the stories don't read that way, I always want to make sure that the victim is as um, human and remembered as possible in those stories. And that also the, the horrible. Does that mean telling like a full, painting like a full picture of them, both the as much as you can, I think, and and also not shying away from from the bad details of the case. And you can see, like, the term advocacy journalism comes up a lot, and I, I, I really don't like that term, <laughs> because to me, uh, advocacy journalism at its worst um, skims over some of the, the, the worst facts of a particular crime. And to me, including those facts makes you credible and makes the story more complex and interesting and, and reliable. I won't use the term advocacy journalism, but when you're looking at those stories, you've got all these cases coming to you. You're looking for a story that's a good story, it sounds like, first and foremost. How important is the impact that a story might have mm-hmm. on someone's life with the case? I have never been good at predicting that. There have been stories that I've worked on where I thought, oh boy, when this comes out, you know, this is just going to be so big and we get maybe two letters from readers and then the month is over and I get really depressed. So <laughs> that's happened a number of times. And then other times, I mean, I never would have imagined in the Anthony Graves case that everything that happened would happen. I just never in a million... So I'm, I'm a terrible predictor of what resonates with people and what is going to happen. I just know, that, to me, like the, the stories that where... I'm driving my husband and my friends crazy because I'm talking about them all the time and I'm preoccupied with them. Those are the stories I have to, I have to write. We've had a couple people who've come on and said, basically, I'm writing the stories that are about myself. Do you think that's a part of how you're picking these things? Or like, is there, is there a person, I mean, not like you're a murderer, but like, <laughs> like uh, do you have a personal connection to the people you end up writing about? Is there something that you see in them. I have a theory. This is like a, such a leading question, but I have a theory, <laughs> which is there's like, uh, kids come up a, a lot, and, mm-hmm. and you are a mom, and, and you write often about kids, both kids who have died and uh, kids who commit crimes. And mm-hmm. I, I, just, I wonder how much of that plays into how you pick those stories. That is the best question anyone has ever asked me. And I'm, I'm stumped, but let me try. Um, I, I definitely, I mean, for me, a pivotal... Well, okay, first of all, I... It has never occurred to me that the stories had anything to do with me, per se, but that said, um, I definitely, uh, sort of the turning point in my life was the very sudden death of my father when I was 20, and this, this sense of, of loss and this sense that, you know, normal life can turn on a dime and not be normal anymore, and that, that really impacted me, and so that sense of loss and that sense of normal life turning on a dime uh, is something that, in a very different way, uh, I, I've experienced, and I feel like I carry that with me definitely into some of the more difficult stories. So I don't, it's not that I'm writing that story, but maybe there, if you're going to get all Freudian, maybe there's something there. So. Okay, well, something there seems like uh, we're getting close. 
that that was a that was a very thought provoking question that I'm going to keep thinking about for a few weeks if I'm if I'm drawn to murderers because there's something you know in my background that. <laughs> Yeah, well, maybe there's some like latent murderous tendencies, but we'll, we'll like uh, we'll get to that the third time we talk. <laughs> Thank you so much, Max. Thank you. Hey, it's Max back in New York on the regular microphone. We got Evan and Mimi Swartz coming up live from Austin, but I'm gonna take a second and tell you about our sponsor real quick. It's Pill Pack. This is actually a totally great idea. If you or someone you know is taking lots of medication, uh, lots of vitamins, sitting there on Sunday nights at the kitchen table with all their bottles and their pillbox open Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, pulling out all of their pills and putting it in the box, hoping they don't screw it up, uh, Pill Pack is going to change their lives. It is a pharmacy. It's a full-on pharmacy, uh, except you don't need to go to them. They come to you. PillPack delivers everything you need pre-sorted in these easy-to-open packets, prescriptions, vitamins, all sorted by date and time and delivered right to your doorstep. Uh, it comes in like a big roll, so if you're going away for a couple of days, you just pull off all the packets you need, rip them off, put them in your bag. It really couldn't be easier. Uh, go check it out, PillPack.com slash longform. That's PillPack.com slash longform. You'll get the first month free. They've got great customer service. It's really easy. Uh Check it out. It's also a way to support the show. That's another perk of using them. So go do that. And uh, in the meantime, here we go. Mimi Swartz, Evan Ratliff, live from Austin. You probably all know Mimi, or if you don't know Mimi, don't know her writing, it means you either never read Texas Monthly uh, or you don't read very much in general. So um, I sat down, as we do oftentimes for these, and we try to... Uh, go back and read someone's archive to really sort of understand the breadth of everything that they've worked on. And I got about a week into it and realized it was essentially impossible, uh, given the amount of time that I had to read everything that she's written over the years. So um, I want to sort of uh, cover a little bit of that of that breadth, but I also I wanted to start by talking about you've you've won two National Magazine Awards for public interest. You've been a finalist for another ma National Magazine Award. You've won a pile of a bunch of other awards. And for those particular awards, they were around stories uh, that were just, they were very large. They were very large in scope. And I'm interested in, particularly, maybe we could talk about the one from, from two years ago, which is called Mothers, Sisters, Daughters, Wives, about basically the history of women's health in Texas. And... I'm curious first sort of when you approach a story like that, something that large, how do you start? Where, where, how do you grapple with an issue? Did you just sit down and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to attack this issue as large as I can? Or how do you sort of get into a story like that? Um, stupidity is what I would say is that when I, people have said to me, oh, you do these big complicated stories. And I'm like, okay, I guess I do, but I don't start out that, like Pam said, that started out seeming to me a fairly straightforward story, and this is how I tend to start, and then what happens is I really love reporting, so I think, well, I'll keep going and see what else I find out, and then it becomes this horrible morass that's out of control, and I need someone like my editor, Jake, to pull me out of it, but... So when you're when you're in the middle of it, how do you how do you have any sense of where of directionally that you're getting the place that you want to go uh, when you're do, when you're in the middle of the reporting? I tend to not know when I'm in the middle. <laughs> 
There, there's a deadline. That really helps because you know you got to turn something in. Or, or my former editor, Greg Curtis, used to talk about white space in the magazine. And if there's anything I've ever been really terrified of, it's white space in the magazine because that means unemployment follows. So you, you know, I think there is a point where you know you've got X amount of time and you've got to make your story fit into those parameters. So there is a point. I mean, I tend to stop reporting when I'm hearing the same stories over and over again. And I know, okay, you've done, you've got to sit down and start writing. So. And do you, uh, in terms of your, your sort of personal approach, like for instance, to that story, it, do you feel like you are driven in the reporting and writing at all by, by outrage, by personal outrage over these issues? I mean, when you win a sort of public service award, the implication is that you know you were you were going after one of these issues to try and and drive change because there was something wrong here. But is that is that what is pushing you motivationally, or or is it just just a sort of curiosity? It is curiosity. Although I will say, in that particular story, I think again, I don't know. Where is Jake? There, you know, there, I think it's very important to have an editor who doesn't think exactly the way you do so that someone can say, well, let's get people to read this story. You know, you don't want to write a piece that's just preaching to the choir. I do want to make people think when I write. So it's very good to have someone else say, well, maybe there's another way to say this or is this really what you mean? And let's think about tempering this. I mean, no one at Texas Monthly has ever said to me, no, you can't do it this way. But I like having people pushing back and just questioning what I'm doing. Because I think that story was helped enormously by having someone else say, just ask me questions about how far I really want to go. And when you're writing uh, stories like that, I mean, you've written stories in a similar vein about you know tort reform in Texas and the influence that it has on people. So there's sort of this this high level idea, and then there's the the people, individual people who are affected by it. And when you when you get to the end, when you get to the writing portion of it, what are you what do you have in mind in terms of what kind of impact you want it to have? Yeah, it's more like what you said. I get sort of excited about, oh my God, here's this great story no one's ever told. So how can I write it so that the maximum number of people want to read it? In other words, I think we used to talk about, you know, here's the homework part of the story. Um, and I try to make the homework as interesting and compelling as possible by finding people who've sort of lived the homework um, and trying to explain it that way. You're being very humble and giving a lot of credit to your editors, but I do. Th I, I think in reading those stories that to write them takes a certain amount of like authoritarian voice. Like you have to have the 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 personal belief that you can sort of speak definitively on this topic. I mean, the 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 mothers, sisters, daughters, wives. It almost reads like a like a sort of for history's purposes, we're going to lay out what happened here, what, what happened with reproductive policy, and for instance, in, in Texas. And so I, I kind of want to get out how you found that authoritarian voice. Starting with just, you started at Texas Monthly a long, long time ago. How did you first get into, I'm curious how you first got into journalism and how you then made the jump to Texas Monthly? Well, I'm trying to remember. I think when I was uh, young, I stumbled upon John Didion and Nora Ephron. And I sort of thought, oh, Women can do this. Look at these stories. They're fantastic. This is what I want to do. And I didn't even know that was what I wanted to do. And I, I started out doing beauty stories and, you know, sort of social status stories. And, and it's like Pam says, I think at a certain point, 
you just realize, oh, I can write the same way and think the same way about bigger issues. And it's very addictive thinking that you could write something that might change policy in Texas. That has not happened with reproductive policy yet, but you at least want to try. I mean, this is the best place for writers ever. You never run out of material. So it's, it's like my husband says about Houston, you cannot walk out your front door without falling over a great story. So it's, it's really a blessing to be living here and, and you find your authority, authorial voice because there are people doing so many nutty things and somebody should be pointing out, you know, I don't think I'm the only one, but many people should be pointing out these are very nutty things, and they're not good for the state. So, you also had a period after you had been on staff at Texas Monthly for a while, where you you uh, went and worked for the New Yorker on staff, and you went and worked at Talk Magazine, uh, which maybe some people in here might not even know. And uh, what made you decide to make? I'm curious, what made you decide to make that change, and and how was it different going to write for those magazines than what you had experienced, uh, you know, here in Texas? Well, the main thing, and, I, and again, I don't know, Larry might be able to speak to this more, but I, I think one of the things I found out is, you know, I grew up here. This is my home. And I think I have more to say to people here. I am more invested in the, in the world of Texas. Um, and so I think that's why I sort of, I, I loved working at The New Yorker. I think I was sort of, I was raising a, I had a very small child at the time, and, and I think it didn't, it wasn't a very good fit. Talk wasn't a good fit because I wanted to do these bigger, longer stories. I think that we all find a place where we can speak to the people we need to talk to. And I'm certainly not saying I wouldn't want to write for the New Yorker again. I wouldn't want to write for the New York Times again. But I think because I grew up here, I can bring an understanding to it that I can convey. And again, the material is just, you know, incomparable. So. How do you experience your relationship with, with readers in Texas? I mean, you've written not only these, I mean, you've written all sorts of stories, but also some, some very intimate stories. I'm thinking of a story which is a little bit shorter that was about uh, your grandmother's engagement ring. And there was so much wrapped up in this story about your family, about you know, marriage and about your son. And I'm curious, do you feel like there are Texas readers who, who sort of know you because you've been here? And is, is that who you're speaking to? Or are you speaking to the reader who, who has never read your stuff before? I think probably both is, is what I try to do. Um, I think, and again, I don't know whether my coworkers or co-writers feel this way, but I think Texas has changed so much. When I was a kid, it was still a rural state. And now it's a very urban state. But I think I had also hoped it might become a more progressive state. And now it's almost like we're going backwards. I, I had a, a friend who was in political life calling it a failed state the other day. And, you know, again, that's material for me. But I do sometimes wonder who I'm talking to. I read the letters that we get at Texas Monthly and think, you know, sometimes they get really mad and you have to have an answer for them. But I think, you know, I just try to put myself on the page and hope that there will be a response, whether, and I understand when people get mad, that's fine too. I don't, 
you know, I think either way, as long as they're, as long as I'm making them think, then that's okay, whether it's essay or a reported story, so. Do you ever despair around any of these issues to sort of look at things that you've really tackled and then, and then find that they, they haven't changed? I've lived here a long time. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't despair. I think I am still actually kind of naive about things and, and hope that we will be able to change things eventually. Um, and, and, you know, maybe I finished a piece for Vogue about military rape that ran this month, and, and the, Kristen Gillibrand's idea went down in flames. It didn't work. And, you know, I, I have to say I had a bad morning. I thought, well, of course this is going to pass. You know, this is the sensible thing. And then, you know, like everybody else, you think, well, no, we'll just start again and keep, keep going. I also wanted to ask you about a, it's a slightly different kind of story, but I feel like I'd be remiss in asking about it because I, I loved it so much, which is the, the story about the UT track coach, um, which is a different flavor of story because it's, uh, it's more of a profile. But uh, first, people should go read it because I'm about to spoil a little bit of the, of the ending to it. Um, but I'm curious about your experience of reporting that because it seemed like, I, I had no awareness of her situation and losing her job before, but it seemed like there was an existing sort of narrative around what had happened. And did you know that that narrative might not hold up when you went in? And how, how did you find that out? Well, this is like the Pam Koloff situation where I thought, this is a pretty straightforward, easy story to do. And because we had talked about this in our editorial meetings, and this was a terrible thing that this had happened to this wonderful woman who had done so much for UT. And I started reporting it. And then I went to lunch with someone, you know, after being on jury duty. And he said to me, well, you ought to talk to this friend of mine, because he tells a different story. And I, I said, okay, who is it? I'll talk to him. And, and this is one of the lessons I've learned as a reporter is every time somebody tells you to go talk to somebody, you damn well better talk to him. Because if I had gone on and ignored him at my peril, I mean, the story could have blown up in my face. Um, and he was, I called this guy. His daughter had run for UT. He was white and prosperous. And he told me some stories about abuse. And I thought, okay, you know, I'll keep it in mind. Um, but I kept reporting, and then when I started trying to track down former runners, they just weren't available. You know, either Bev would say, well, they don't want to get crosswise with UT, and, and I had one person in the athletic department who, who was sort of a deep throat, who had come from this same guy in Alabama, and he said, look, just... He didn't want to tell me very much, but he said, just call every woman on the roster from this period to this period. And I think I called, you know, called, emailed, charged an enormous amount of searches to the magazine till I found somebody who finally just started talking. I mean, and I had seen her name in a USA Today comments line where she had said, this is not the Bev I know or knew. And it was a story, again, about how terrible it was and uh, that Bev was fired. And I went to Utah to interview. Again, I want to thank my editor because I went all over the place trying to track down these women. And she didn't want to talk to me in person, so I went to Utah and sat in the blazing sun while she was coaching. And she just laid out really how this woman had almost ruined her life. And from her, I found very slowly other girls. And, and then 
because they were friends, then they would tell their other friends it was okay to talk to me. But it was a fantastic experience. I, I have to say, I really love doing that story. So. When you had to actually go back to Bev, who's the, the former track coach, and, and sort of, I assume, lay out some of this stuff for her, I mean, did you ever have a moment where you thought uh, you didn't want to do the story that went that way, that you actually, you sort of, that you thought, well, maybe I just won't do the story if it goes in this direction, or uh, that's, these are sort of two questions. And then the other question is, what was your approach to sort of go back to this person and say, I'm not finding the same narrative that you are projecting necessarily? Well, I was lucky in that a lot of the things she told me were true. She's very smart. And her take on UT, I think, was correct about how frightened they were of change and, and things like that. So I could go that far with her. And then I would say to her, look, you know, I've talked to these former teammates and they were not happy with you. And she would say, you know, it was a reasonable answer. Well, you know, there are always going to be a few on a team that don't work out. But, and I kept that in mind, but it was the fact that I kept calling runners and it didn't matter whether they had run for her when she first got to UT, uh, I think at the end of the 90s, or whether they were running for her now. They told the same story, and that's why I went with, with the young women, um, because the damage, she was, I felt bad because she has such strength and such intelligence, uh, she's brilliant. But what she did to those young women was inexcusable. I mean, if that had been my child, and, and I thought also there was a larger issue. We'd seen a lot of coaching scandals come from the male side, and I thought, well, this is, you know, it happens to women too, so it needs to be written about. Mm -hmm. It's a beautifully written story, and it's also, it's very complex. There's these, you know, it's not like there's a hero and a villain. There's sort of multiple layers to it. Uh, and it's really edit or credit again. So, <laughs> um, so uh, I think we're we're getting close to being up. But I also I wanted to touch on. I mean, you wrote this book about Enron, and I was looking back, and it's it's a little more than ten years since that book came out. And in the vein of uh, of Max asking Pam, sort of, you know, do you keep up with these people? I'm curious how you look at the Enron story now. If you think about it, uh, if you you know check in on on. You know, even even you know, you're writing with a whistleblower. Basically, um, if you talk to her and and where where that sort of is in your life now. Well, I still think it's a great great story. I think this was the, you know, they were in a lot of ways the canary in the coal mine for every financial disaster that followed. I do still keep up with uh, Sharon Watkins, and I keep up with Amanda Martin, who was sort of the femme fatale um, of the of Enron. But I, you know, I keep thinking somebody should do that as a movie. It's, it's just, it's full of great characters, and it, it just will never, you know, I, I don't feel like I did it justice. I almost feel like I could go back now. You know, a friend of mine said, no, you should spend 10 years on this book about Enron. I thought, no way. But it could have worked. It, it's a, you know, I just think it, it did predict what was coming in a way that still hasn't been taken fully into account. Have you, uh, are you given thought to, to writing another book at all? I, I am doing another book now about heart disease because I can't get out of Houston and that's where sort of the whole world of heart disease is based, so. Oh, wow, so do you, and is there, a, is there any personal element to it or is it all reporting 
It, it's just, I, I have to say, I am totally attached to Houston, and it's a sneaky way to do a history of Houston, um, and that's why. And the char- again, like Enron, it, they're fantastic characters, and there's a lot of drama, so it should be fun. Well, thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Hey, this is Max. Uh, that's it for part one. Moving on to part two. Aaron Lammer, Larry Wright. It's queued up wherever you're listening to this. It's just the next one. Go listen to it. It's great. Why do you run? Why does anyone I always thought that runners loved running, and that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.